But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is what it says. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people when they're deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. For him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. All right. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we uh, praise you as the God and maker of our world, the one who made us and who loves us and who sent his son into the world that we might know you and Lord we pray that as we reflect on these words this morning that we would know you, that we would know you as our, uh, as our God and Saviour, that we would know the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as our Lord and King uh, and Redeemer uh, and that we would know the work of your Spirit in our lives, uh, refining us and transforming us to be like your majestic Son Jesus. We ask it uh, for his name's sake. Amen. Well, if you're joining us uh, for the first time this morning or if you've been away for a bit, over the last few weeks we've been thinking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a lifelong learner of Jesus. We've thought about Jesus' call of discipleship, his invitation to those who are weary and burdened to come to him and to find rest in him, to learn from him, to take his yoke upon them. We've seen the cost of taking up that invitation. The cost is uh, everything that we are, everything that we have, all our relationships, even our very lives. That's what it costs us to receive Christ's invitation. And we've thought about the goal and the means of discipleship. Where are we going? Well, the goal is striving uh, toward learning Christ, toward holiness, that holiness for which Christ has taken hold of us, that uh, holiness which he has promised us. And this morning we're thinking about the where of discipleship. So whenever you set out to learn something, there's a few questions that you need to ask. You need to ask, what am I learning? Uh, So you might be learning maths or you might be learning how to sew. So you start by asking what, then you need to ask, how am I going to learn it? Uh, So often you learn by hearing the theory 
and then trying to put that into practice. So if you're learning to knit, you need somebody to show you how to knit and then you need to try it. Uh, You need both of those things. But third, you need to ask, where do I learn it? Uh, Often the answer to that question in in ordinary life is that you learn it uh, in a school or in the workplace or or at university uh, or at the, the local knitting group if you're learning to knit. But it's important for us to ask the where question when it comes to learning Jesus as well. You see, for lots of people, I think, learning to be a disciple of Jesus, learning in being a disciple of Jesus, is something that you do on your own. But the Bible says that learning to be a disciple of Jesus is something that happens in a community, just like at a school or a university or a workplace or a knitting group. We learn in a community of people who are learning as well or who have learned things as well and who can share those things with us. And that's what Paul is talking about in the passage that we just read, that Tamara read for us. He's talking about the where of learning to be a disciple of Jesus. It helps to start off in terms of getting our heads around what's happening in Ephesians chapter 4 to see how this passage is set within the framework of discipleship and the life of following Jesus. So back in verse 1 of of chapter 4, Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So Paul says, you've been called, you've been called by Jesus to be his disciple. Now live a life worthy of that. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Live a life worthy of that call of discipleship. Uh, So also also in verse 12, the aim is that we might be built up. Uh, And verse 13, that we might all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we had maturity last week. For those who are here, we saw that the goal of the Christian life is maturity in Christ. And it's the same idea here. And again, that maturity is not a small goal, but a big goal. It's attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is, it's striving for the completeness and the wholeness, the holiness, the perfection for which Christ has rescued us. That's where Christ means to take us when he presents us before the Father on the last day. The aim, according to verse 14, is that we might be mature, rather than being infants who are tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So the kind of maturity that uh, God has in mind is theological maturity or maturity and knowledge and understanding of who God is. We need to know who God is so that we're not blown around by every wind of teaching Uh, that comes our way. And yet as Paul continues over the next chapters, over the rest of chapter 4 and 5 and 6, it becomes clear that that theological maturity, that maturity in our understanding, then goes on to work its way out in our manner of life and in our relationships and in every sphere uh, of our lives. But here's the really revolutionary idea that Paul presents here. 
the revolutionary idea that Paul presents is that maturity is not just an individual goal, but a shared goal. Maturity is not just an individual goal, but a shared goal. Maturity is not just an individual goal, but a corporate goal. All through this passage, Paul is speaking about, uh, in the singular, about the whole body. That is, it's one body working toward one purpose. So in verse 13, he says that the goal is that we all reach maturity as a mature man, singular, mature person. That is, the goal is one mature body of Christ, not simply many mature individuals, but one mature body of Christ. You find the same in verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. So the aim is that as a whole body, the whole body becomes like the Lord Jesus Christ. So we tend to think of maturity uh, as an individualistic task. We, We think, I need to make myself more mature. And there's truth in that. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5, uh, he talks about the mature who have trained themselves to distinguish from good and evil. Uh, distinguish between good and evil. Uh, but there's an important sense in which maturity is not simply an individual goal, but a shared goal. That is, we are to work for the maturity of each other. The goal is not simply your maturity or my maturity but the maturity of the whole body. Uh, And the goal of the whole body as a collective is the maturity of the whole body. And your goal as an individual within the body is the maturity of the whole body. Now, that idea has pretty significant and pretty profound implications for how we think about the Christian life. So let me give you three implications, I think, of that. First of all, if the goal is not uh, your or my personal maturity, but the maturity of the whole body, then that means that none of us can ever rest until the whole body is mature. So it's inadequate to say, well, I'm mature. I know what it is to follow Christ. Therefore, I don't need to do anything more. Instead, our question ought to be, How can I help those around me to grow in their maturity in Christ as well? So you might be wonderfully mature and godly. You might be a paragon of of virtue. But if the people around you are not mature, then your job is not done. The body is not mature. Our job is not done until the whole body reflects the perfection of Christ. Of course, that's a job that will not be completed this side of eternity But that just means that we have to keep working at it in the strength that Christ provides until he returns. Second, uh, if the goal is not just uh, your or my individual maturity, but the maturity of the body, then that also shapes what we do. If the goal is personal maturity only, then you will be content with personal Bible reading and personal prayer. You can closet yourself away from the rest of the community of God's people and grow to maturity like a a kind of a well-cellared cheese, just one cheese in the basement on its own. But if the goal is the maturity of the body, 
then you'll have to spend time among the body. You'll need to rub shoulders with the body. You'll need to find contexts in which you can seek the maturity of the whole body. Third, if the goal is not my maturity or your maturity alone, but the maturity of the whole body, then that also changes our expectations. So if the goal is your own maturity, then you'll come to the community expecting the community to make you mature. You'll come on Sunday or you'll turn up at your growth group or uh, at uh, LEAF or uh, at the missions prayer meeting. You'll turn up at those things expecting that what the result of that will be is that you leave more mature. After all, that's the goal of those people is to make you mature. But actually, that's not the, the, uh, the only goal. The goal is the, go- the maturity of the whole group. So you might leave and think, well, I haven't grown in my maturity, therefore it's been a waste of time. But actually, if others in the group have grown in their maturity, then it's not a waste of time because the body is growing to maturity, not simply the individual. If the goal is the maturity of the whole community, then you'll come to the community looking for ways to grow the community. And your question at the end of the day will not be, have I grown? But has the community grown? Most of us, uh, I reckon, think of the church as a bit like a hospital. Which is, in itself, not wrong. The problem, though, is that we think of the hospital like this, where the patient and everybody else is the doctor. That is, everybody else, the goal of everyone else is to help me to get better. But that's a wrong view of the church. The more accurate view is that the church is a hospital, Christ is the doctor, and all of us are patients. And we're all rolling out of bed and clambering across the floor, trying to patch up each other's arms and clean out each other's bedpans. We're all sick, barely able to cope, barely able to cope with the lives that God has given us, and desperately, desperately trying to help each other grow. So maturity is a corporate goal. Our aim is a mature church, not simply mature uh, our own maturity. But how does that happen? How does that happen on the ground? Well, Paul says it happens by each person using the grace that God has given them to speak the truth in love. So before Paul outlines this task, this big task of growing as a body towards maturity, he says something very important. He says in verse 7, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So here we are, we're one body, we're united together uh, as one body, but we're not all the same. In fact, Christ has given to each uh, uh, grace in different ways, in different measures, different gifts in order to serve that one body, that one uh, common purpose. Paul here doesn't outline what those gifts are, but you can look at the rest of the New Testament 
uh, and you can get some idea from that what kinds of things he's thinking about. Really, he's thinking about almost everything. So those gifts can be skills like speaking and leadership, uh, doing acts of mercy. They can be life circumstances uh, like singleness or marriage can be gifts. Uh, And they can be things like money or, by extension, things like time as well. The point is that those gifts are given by God to build up the body. So, Paul says in verse 16, "...from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work." So, every part, every supporting ligament... Every part uses its gifts, grows and builds itself, uh, grows and builds the body up, each part doing its work. So it's not the job of a few people to make the community mature, but it's the job of every member to make the community mature. How do we do that? Paul says we do it, verse 15, by all of us speaking the truth in love. That might seem a bit strange because when we think about the kinds of gifts that we know the New Testament speaks about, not all of them seem to be about speaking. Singleness is a gift, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, but that doesn't really seem to be about speaking, does it? Marriage is also a gift, Paul says in the same chapter. Uh, or what about doing acts of mercy? That doesn't seem to be about speaking. So how, does, how, do, how do those gifts uh, time or things or abilities, how do those things connect with speaking the truth in love? I think the answer is that the exercise of all those other gifts, whether that's our life circumstance or the things that we own or the particular abilities and skills that we have, the exercise of all those gifts create opportunities in which we can speak the truth in love. All those other activities create forums in which to encourage each other with the truth of the gospel. The aim, uh, Paul says, is to use our gifts that God has given us to create these opportunities to speak the truth in love. So one of the aims uh, for us as a church this year, one of the things we're, we're really trying to focus hard on doing better at One of our aims is to make uh, discipleship part of everything we do. Or another way of saying that, kind of flying out of this passage, is making speaking the truth in love part of everything that we do. So obviously what we're doing together on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon is part of that, what we do in our growth groups or LEAF uh, or in Sunday school. All those are places, they're contexts where we can speak the truth in love to one another. We do that through the sermon, uh, through our songs, in our prayers, but we also speak the truth in love to other, uh, speak the truth in love to one another um, in our conversation. So every conversation that we have on a Sunday morning after church or before church is an opportunity for discipleship. It's an opportunity to help somebody else mature in Christ. Uh, every conversation that you have, if you're on the cleaning. Uh, you know, cleaning up the kitchen after church, every conversation that you have there is an opportunity for discipleship. Uh, you know, if you're uh, standing in the survey, that could be as simple as saying to the people who come past, what have you read in the Bible this week which has challenged you or encouraged you? 
if you go to the survey today, you should expect to be asked that question. So prepare now. But it can happen in all kinds of places too, can't it? So a midweek ministry leaders meeting is not a boring inconvenience, but it's an opportunity to hear how other people are going and to encourage them and to grow them in the faith. Or a 20-minute meeting uh, for the people who are on the chair roster is not just an opportunity to get the logistics of setting up chairs nailed down, but it's an opportunity to talk with each other and to, and to, and to hear what other people are facing. It, it's an opportunity to help people deal with unfair criticism uh, or to help them deal with legit, legitimate feedback. Or it's an opportunity to help them think about what they're doing is not just a chore, but an opportunity to serve. It's an opportunity to hear how people's lives are going and to pray for each other. If you make a meal for someone in the church, don't just drop it off, but ask how they're going and ask if they have time for you to come in briefly and to pray with them. Everything we do together as a church is an opportunity for speaking the truth in love. Nothing is just boring administration. But it's important that we think beyond just what we do kind of in formal church settings as well. We need to think beyond that. There's lots of ways outside the church that we can grow people as well. One of the most powerful ways, I think, to do that to grow others toward maturity and to grow ourselves toward maturity uh, is by meeting up with somebody else one to one. Over the years, I've done that with a number of, uh, with a fair few different people, uh, and every time that looks completely different. There's not one rule about how it should be done. Every person's different, every relationship is different, and every context, uh, every meeting works differently. Sometimes I've met with people at lunchtime, sometimes it's been after work and before dinner. Once, only once, it was at six o'clock in the morning. I was reminiscing last week uh, about that with uh, Luke, Luke Yongling. We met at six o'clock in the morning, it was awful. No, he, he was up by then, I was just, scrag, you know, whatever. Just, I couldn't get out of bed, that's, that's the point. And sometimes when, I, when I've met with people, we've, uh, we've sat down and we've read the Bible, we've discussed it, we've prayed it, uh, prayed through it. Uh, other times we've read a Christian book together and, and then each week we would discuss the chapter that we'd read. Uh, with others, we've just met up and we've had open-ended conversations. But the intention has always been to reflect on life in the light of God's truth in the Bible. The last way, I think, is the hardest way to do, that is just to have an open-ended conversation because you can end up talking about nothing but the football for an hour. Um, so if you struggle to bring the Bible to bear on your conversations, it's great to start with the Bible. Uh, reading the Bible together helps us to speak the truth in love when it's not our natural inclination. Uh, and reading the Bible together is really important if you don't know the Bible well because you can't bring the Bible's truth to bear on your life unless you know what the Bible says about life. So one-to-one is a great context where uh, you can grow and others can grow. It's a long-term big investment in someone's life and it has remarkable uh, payoffs in people's lives as well. 
But it doesn't have to be one-to-one. One-to-one is very time-consuming. Uh, you can only do so, so much of it. Uh, nor does it have to be week in, week out. It can be one-offs. It can be an, uh, an evening. It could be a five-hour evening spent uh, with someone every six months. It could be a 15-minute conversation where you seize the day uh, and speak the truth in love. It can be as simple as sending a text message or writing a letter. But that said, there does seem to be something powerful about face-to-face interactions. And I think in our present age and day and culture, it's important not to lose. I read a uh, a book recently called Digital Minimalism by uh, a guy called Cal Newport. And in that book, he makes what I think is a very uh, helpful point. He says that digital media, digital communication, like things like Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram and all those things, are not without value. They do help us in some ways to build and maintain relationships. But they are less valuable than what he calls analogue communication, that is, face-to-face or on the phone or things like that. The problem becomes that digital communications uh, is of low value and less satisfying, but those communications crowd out the opportunities for those analogue, face-to-face conversations. So they're not valueless, but we preference them, and so we lose the time and the opportunity to have the meaningful face-to-face conversations or phone conversations or time together which are actually deeper, more significant and have the ability to change and uh, transform us more. So if you're spending multiple hours a day communicating digitally, which according to the stats in our society is probably par for the course, between one to three hours a day, then you've got less time to communicate with people in person. It's important, I think, for us to understand that growing disciples and building others to maturity takes time. It takes intensive time. And it takes not just quality time, but what one author has called quantity time. Uh, people use the idea of quality time to talk about the concept uh, that, uh, you know, it might be a father with their child. So they say, I'm going to spend half an hour of quality time with my child. Now, that can be helpful. But the reality is that often uh, you can't just allocate half an hour to have a deep and meaningful conversation. Those kinds of conversations happen along the way. Ten minutes of a three-hour drive or 10 minutes of a five-hour project working in the backyard. You can't just allocate time for them, expect them to happen. But, without allocating time for them, they'll never happen. We need to grow in making time to meet with other people uh, and using our gifts to create opportunities to speak the truth in love. For some people, that might look like meeting up with another person in a coffee shop. It might mean meeting up with a group of people in a coffee shop. 
For others, it might mean inviting people over for lunch or dinner or inviting them over to play board games. The great thing about board games is you don't always have to talk. But you can if you want to. You can take people bushwalking, you can go riding, you can do a road trip. One of my favourite examples of discipleship comes from a book called Dallas and the Spitfire. There was a guy who was tasked with discipling a man, an ex-prisoner. He just, he literally just got out of prison. They met up in a coffee shop. It was a complete disaster. After five minutes, he's, this guy th- said to himself, this is not going to work. Meeting up with a, in a coffee shop with this prisoner is not going to work. So they bought a wreck of a car, a Spitfire, and every Saturday, they'd work on that Spitfire for year after year after year. And it was in that context of building the car together that he was able to explain to him what it meant to know to love Jesus and to follow him. Every meeting is a context for discipleship and it's a lifetime goal. That is, it extends over our whole lifetime but it's part of every moment of our lifetime as well. So maturity is the goal. A mature church, not just our own maturity, We work towards it by using the grace God has given us to speak the truth in love. Finally, if the maturity of the church is the task of the whole church, then what's the role of pastors and evangelists? If we're all supposed to be doing that work, then why do we set people aside for ministry? That's not my question, that's Paul's question. And Paul answers that in verse 11. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So Paul lists five types of leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. And he says that they have a very specific role. He says that their role is to equip the saints. That is, they're trainers. Uh, In the book, The Trellis and the Vine, uh, Cole Marshall and Tony Payne talk about three models that we can have of what pastors do, or three models that people do have of what pastors do. So there's the pastor as clergy model, uh, or if you like, the pastor as a kind of spiritual service provider. So in the pastor as clergy model, the pastor is the one who does all that building the people in maturity, speaking the truth in love, knows everyone solves everyone's problem. That's the pastor as clergy. Then there's the model of the pastor as CEO. In that model, the pastor oversees others who are on the front line, but he's never on the front line himself. He's, he just kind of oversees a complex organisation of staff who solve other people's problems. The third model is the pastor as trainer. And in that model, the pastor is a kind of player coach. He's playing on the same team alongside everyone else, but he also has the task of equipping the others to play the game. And that's the model that Paul is talking about here. Paul says that God has given certain people, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers and evangelists, he's given those people to be player coaches, to train, to equip the body for works of service. So how do they do that? Well, uh, there are really two groups uh, that those five can be divided down into. The first are the apostles and prophets. And by that he means those whose writings we have 
uh, in the Old and the New Testament. So the prophets, as a technical description, if you look at how that word is used across the New Testament, the prophets is a technical description, more or less, uh, to refer to the Old Testament prophets. Uh, While the, the term apostles refers to that band of 12 disciples of Jesus who witnessed his life, his death, his resurrection, and who together kind of became the foundation for the early church. So Paul refers to that group back in chapter 2, verse 20, when he says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So the foundation of the church is God's word in the Old and the New Testaments, the words through the prophets, which is fulfilled in Jesus, and the apostles uh, who explain the life and the ministry of Jesus. In other words, the words of those people written down for us in Scripture equip us. Even though they're long dead, those people still continue to equip us so that we can build each other up to maturity in Christ. As we read the Scriptures... We are being equipped by the Spirit through those apostles and prophets, through their words, to build each other up to maturity in Christ. But then there's the second group, which is the pastors, the teachers, and evangelists. If the role of the apostles and prophets was to lay the foundation of the church, then the role of the pastors and teachers and evangelists is to continue building on that foundation. So the roles of pastors, teachers and evangelists, the way that they do that uh, is, is different. They, have, they all work towards that goal but have different focuses, if you like. So teachers build on that foundation of the apostles and prophets by continuing to teach God's people the truth so that they can build each other up in the truth. So in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul tells Timothy to teach people so well that people can go on and teach others. So normally when we think about teaching people, our goal is that people learn. But actually Paul says that's an inadequate goal. We should teach people so well that they are then actually able to go on and teach others who can then teach others again. That's the role of teachers. To teach us so that we can teach and encourage others. Pastors or uh, pastors and elders, the terms are interchangeable. Pastors continue the ministry of the apostles and prophets by shepherding people. What does that mean? Uh, When we tend to think of the word pastor, we tend to think in a in uh, sometimes in a a sort of a therapeutic model. Uh, So the role of the pastor is doing pastoral care. And when we hear the words pastoral care, we think predominantly perhaps of someone coming alongside people who are distressed uh, or sick uh, and comforting them. And while that might be part of the role of of, uh, shepherding, the role of a shepherd is not uh, comforting the distressed, but the role of the shepherd is to lead the sheep. Indeed, Paul says that the role of the shepherd is to lead and equip the sheep as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the role of the shepherd is not to accompany us where we're going, but to lead us where Christ is going. It's about leading people in the truth, making sure that they've grasped the gospel, protecting people from error, calling them back from sin, 
It can mean going and fetching people who are wandering away. It can mean leading people in directions that they don't want to go. Uh, It also includes leading people who are going in the right way and who are happy going in the right way and encouraging them and keeping them going in that right way as well. The aim of that work, Paul says, is so that we can minister to each other. Finally, there are the evangelists. I should say these three roles are overlapping, I think, in some ways, but distinguishable. Uh, Finally, there are the evangelists, and like pastors and teachers, they continue to build on the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, but their focus is on taking the gospel to those who need to hear it. That is, they carry on the church planting ministry of of the apostles. Without evangelists leading us in evangelism and training us for evangelism, the church easily becomes introspective. It becomes a domestic hospital whose aim it is to fluff up the pillows and to make us feel better about ourselves, rather than being a war hospital just a few kilometres back from the front line whose aim is to patch up the soldiers and to get them back out onto the front. Evangelists help us to keep that focus and train us for that fight. The purpose of setting aside people for those kinds of ministries is so that we might be equipped to build each other up. A few weeks ago, I came across uh, the letter that we sent out nearly three and a half years ago when uh, we were going through the process of looking for an assistant pastor. And I think that letter outlined the kind of principle that is at play in this chapter. So it said, the purpose of seeking an additional pastor is not designed so that the assistant pastor will do all the member care or do all the evangelism. Rather, the purpose of the role is to help each of us grow in serving and loving each other better. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, pastors and teachers are God's gifts to the church to prepare God's people for works of service so that the whole body may be built up. Pastors and elders train, all of us build. For instance, one solitary person can only visit and encourage, correct and rebuke and speak the gospel into a handful of people's lives. But a whole church trained and equipped by the gospel to minister the gospel can serve each other much more fully. We can all visit people in hospital, sit with people who are depressed, challenge someone who's wandering away from the faith, reconcile a broken relationship encourage someone who's lost hope, share something of the gospel in ordinary conversation. In this chapter of Ephesians, that's the vision that God sets before us. A vision not simply of personal wholeness in Christ, but the wholeness of the whole body of Christ. And that's a goal that we all strive for with the grace that God has given to us. We do that with those gifts, speaking the truth in love and being equipped by God's word through his apostles and prophets in the Bible and through the ongoing ministry of pastors and teachers and evangelists. The goal is that we would all be equipped so that we might all work toward the heavenly goal of perfection in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great uh, thing to which you have called us, not just to be uh, holy and blameless ourselves, but to be a holy and blameless uh, community, a church, a people of God, the body of Christ. And Lord, that's an enormous goal. Uh, And so Lord, we thank you that that's uh, not something that we have to do uh, in our own strength and effort, but that is something that Christ uh, is doing, that he has done, that he has promised, and that he will finally accomplish at the last day when he presents his bride, the church, as holy and blameless without spot uh, and blemish or any other wrinkle. And yet, Lord, thank you that you've invited us to be part of that in working towards that goal as your people uh, invited us and given us the grace and the gifts that we need to work towards that, to speak the truth in love. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd help us to do that. Help us to take up that mandate, that command, uh, that challenge to work towards the maturity of each other, to work towards the maturity of this church uh, and of the church at large. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to feel weighed down by that, but encouraged by your grace, which so powerfully works uh, among us. Lord, help us to move away from thinking so much of ourselves and our own growth and maturity to think more broadly about the growth and the maturity of those that you have placed around us. And Lord, help us to continue to be equipped for that ministry. Help uh, me and Steve and the elders and others who work in ministry in this church to work hard so that the saints might be equipped for every good work. Lord, we pray that we might be truly uh, a church, not just individual Christians, but a community of people who love Jesus and who are becoming more like him every day. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.